Between supply chain disruptions to government-imposed lockdowns, many multinationals have endured excruciating losses thanks to COVID-19. The OECD addressed this very pressing issue in its guidance on the transfer pricing implications of the COVID-19 pandemic and provided recommendations for how to handle them. But here's where it gets tricky. A limited risk entity isn't clearly defined in the OECD guidelines, making its inclusion in pandemic-induced losses even more complicated. On today's episode of The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, we unpack whether limited risk distributors and low-risk service providers should enter the loss pool along with loss-sharing alternatives. This discussion comes from our live event, Transfer Pricing Strategies for COVID-19, the session, Why Limited Risk Distributors Should Not Share in COVID-19 Losses, a Minority Opinion, is conducted by Chief Economist Mimi Song and Transfer Pricing Expert Johan Muller. We'll hear from them in a moment, but first, a message from my friends and yours at Cross Border Solutions. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We now bring you Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Transfer Pricing Expert Johan Muller in conversation at Cross-Border Solutions' latest virtual event, Transfer Pricing Strategies for COVID-19, the session Why Limited Risk Distributors Should Not Share in COVID-19 Losses, a Minority Opinion. We are very lucky today to have Johan Muller joining us from Denmark. Johan, would you like to give everybody a quick introduction? Sure. My name is Johan Muller. I've been in tax and, and transfer pricing international tax for, oh God, somewhere between 20 and 30 years. I started my career with the big four, being in the international tax practice or the ruling practice in Holland in the old days, and then moved at some point for different firms. I worked in, in, in London and New York as well, did a lot of the structured finance deals, as we, as we call them in those days. Moved back to Holland and then to Denmark and moved in-house from being an advisor to in-house and really enjoyed that a lot. It is a different angle of the same profession. I've always, through my consultancy days and, and, and in-house days, done a lot of teaching and speaking at conferences and, and things like that. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I've more or less made that my full-time occupation now since about half a year, starting last November. I do do some interim tax work still for businesses because I want to stay in touch with the practice, if you want to, if one can call it that way, focusing on 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 teaching boutique firms, governments, and 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 focusing on transfer pricing and international corporate tax. And then I'm also the editor of a of a PE database from Walter Kluver, and and what we do there is we 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 look at 
permanent establishments country by country in a fixed format on different aspects of PEs. And again, combining it with my hobby of transfer pricing, what I've really focused on is how do you tax different types of PEs? Because so often when you read books or guidelines or things like that, you get all the different types of PEs, but then you get one chapter on profit allocation. And if you think about it, it cannot make sense. I mean, you cannot have the same methods of profit allocation for a construction site as you have for a dependent agent PE. <laughs> so I've really been trying to split that out a lot, you know, so we can see the different arguments for different allocations in how you deal with PEs. I'm enjoying it a lot because you just see across the globe that there may be so many countries and so many different answers, but actually everyone chooses something out of four or five options and different combinations yep. of that. Yep, a man of many talents and areas of expertise. So don't be shy about asking your questions here. And for everybody, just quick background and introduction to myself. My name is Mimi Song. I'm actually the chief economist here at Cross Border Solutions. I've also been in the transfer pricing space for over 20 years now and both on the in-house side as well as the consulting side. And I do agree with Johan that being on the in-house side, it gives you a different perspective and it's fascinating to see the internal operational challenges. It goes beyond just what you see from an economic analysis perspective. But today exactly. we're going to specifically look at, you know, limited risk distributors, right? This construct about limited risk distributors and all of us have suffered over the past year and a half now, roughly as a result of the pandemic. And because of that, there's a big question mark out there of what should we do from an intercompany perspective, from a related party perspective. So today we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to first start with an understanding of, you know, the OECD guidance related to this construct of a limited risk entity. And then Yohan's going to give us a little bit of perspective in terms of what the alternatives could be for this loss sharing construct. And of course, We'll provide you hopefully with some great practical takeaways that you can apply to your organization, to your practice. And Johan, when we think about limited risk entities and we think about the pandemic and how it's impacted us over last year, and OECD has given us a lot of their perspective and guidance on the handling of losses. Nobody talks about how to split profits. Everyone's pretty happy that they get some share of the profits. But when we talk about losses, people start to get a little jittery. They get a little more sensitive. Tell us, what's the OECD's general perspective on law sharing? Actually, let me just fill in a little bit about your previous question. Of course, I completely forgot to mention that I've also been in government and I've been actually yeah, working for the, with the government <laughs> authority on transfer pricing and being a case handler there. In that capacity, I've also been a, a representative for Denmark at, at WP6. Kind of when they started the BEPS project and, and halfway into it, they gave a very interesting perspective on obviously another side of the same specialization. I think for the OECD guidance on, on, on COVID more in general, has been they, they, they came out pretty early in, in, I think, May 2020 on how to deal with this. They came out also in January with further guidance, January of this year. If you look at the guidance that they gave there, it, it, it very much focused on PEs, on residents and stuff like that. So the OECD did not, for, with COVID specifically, at least not what I'm aware of, or maybe I'm missing something, give guidance on losses itself, right? But we've also had 
the 2008 financial crisis. And, and, and even though it wasn't a pandemic, it more or less plunged the world, or at least the Western world, in, into similar financial crises. And I think right. governments have learned from that. If you look at the, I think the OECD has not said anything about losses regarding COVID because it is a sensitive area. But if you look at, for instance, the Australian government, it basically issued what I interpreted as a warning of, you know, if you're going to start doing what happened in 2008, where low-risk entities started making losses, we'll be watching you. They have issued guidelines and said, we want to know how your setup was before this, whether the losses that you've realized has really been COVID-related, and how you deal with this. So I think if we go through the points on, on the slide here, limited risk entity is not clearly defined in the OECD guidelines. And what I mean by that is, you know, the guidelines don't really tell us how limited is limited, right? Because you right. could have an entity which do carry debtors risk, inventory risk, market risk, all of those things. You don't expect a higher return and maybe also more leeway towards then sharing in losses when you get there, right? But if you are a classic LRD that we think of, where you try to strip all the risks away and use that as a justification for having very low routine profits, then I think one should be careful with this. There's nowhere in the guidelines that it says, you know, you're only limited risk as, as long as everything is fine. That simply right. doesn't happen. Transfer pricing to me is very simple if, if you bring it back to the individual level. and. Think of a situation where someone comes to you and say, we'd like you to come and work for us, but there's a pandemic going on. We, we, we'd like you to work for free. Whether you're going to say yes or no is, in most circumstances, you will say no. I still expect to get paid, right? And, and yeah. I, I may not get paid in cash now, but I expect then some kind of other benefit, either in kind, in terms of time, in terms of some products or whatever. But I would expect a reward no matter what. And I don't really see how that would be very different for a true LRD. And just a general comment here on also the title of the show. I mean, this is a minority opinion. I know yeah. when you look at advisors, right? I think if you look at governments, I'm, I'm not sure that this is a minority opinion. And I think then the other interesting group in this is if you look at in-house tax people like we've been. My experience of an in-house team is most of them are understaffed. And the last thing you want to do is do something now for a small profit gain, which is going to cost you years and years of audits and litigation. When you are talking about the definition of which risks are being limited, if you will, or being stripped out from one of the related mm -hmm. parties, my question or my point was to say, do you really think that those related parties had in mind what would be the worst case scenario of what would happen if there was a pandemic, right? And let's just take a simple example for restaurants, mm -hmm. mandatory closures of restaurants, right? Yeah. And so if you had a relationship, yeah. and, and this is not a limited risk distribution relationship, but you know, when yeah. you think about fast food franchises, they have both company operated franchises and they have third party licensees. And so if that company were to agree with the third party licensees who can't pay the royalty, for example, right? Would they provide yeah. some relief from that royalty? And if they did provide relief from that royalty, does it make sense that they should provide that same level of relief from royalty for their company-owned franchisees as well? I would say it absolutely does. 
I mean, it, it might be very fact specific, right? You may have some countries where because of the close down, the fast food takeaway industry is booming. And in that case, maybe they won't give relief in those countries from royalties, but they will give in others where that is not the case, where maybe you're not even allowed to go out and get your takeaways, right? So, so you would have to look at that balance. But I think there's different things here. One is, obviously, we stick to the limited risk and what that means and how consistent you are in that and, and how to deal with it. But I've seen two other things. I mean, I think we can take some guidance from what governments have done for business. And you can yeah. ask yourself, mm -hmm. is that something that a parent company do, would or should do for a subsidiary or for a service provider or so? And I've actually been in, in a company where, you know, one of the things that the company have done is they've said, you know, we're one of those companies who was Medtech company by making devices which, which people need regardless of whether there is a pandemic or not. So actually, we're doing relatively well compared to other industries. And we're simply going to start by paying our service providers as soon as we get the invoice instead of waiting the normal 60 or, or 90 days. And I, I mean, that was a great social responsibility gesture, I think, for the group as such. But also, maybe that's something you want to do for group companies as well. You know, there, there are many different right. ways in, in, in dealing with this. I think that I've said what I want to say about the, the limited risk entity is not clearly defined in, in, in the OEC guidelines. I don't know if you have more questions or comments that you, that you think we should go through about that. No, not necessarily. It sounds like you would you would definitely be on the same wavelength, if you will, in terms of a company's facts and circumstances clearly dictate how they should be splitting profits and losses. Risks and losses ultimately should be aligned. Yes, I mean, I think that that general baseline you'd be in agreement with, right? I... I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> no, okay. in the sense that if you started the pandemic as an LRD, I think you uh -huh. should do everything you can to stay an LRD during the pandemic, is, is what I'm saying. So to me, that would not mean splitting losses right. necessarily. So let's go into that, right? I mean, this idea of LRDs and why they shouldn't split losses, right? Let's talk a little bit about your perspective here. Right? What is your perspective? I think you said okay. if you were an LRD pre-pandemic, you should continue to remain an LRD during the pandemic and post-pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. And just, I, I don't know if you want to go back to that later, but uh, but I, I'd like to make some further comments about some of the other bullets on, on, on oh, that slide, sure. um, if we have time for that. But I, I do think, you know, if you start as, as an LRD, again, I would just think if I'm a service provider for someone before the pandemic and the pandemic hits and they, and they still want my services, you know, but they don't want to pay for it or want to pay much less for it, will I accept that? And then the answer is not without a fight, right? Because apart from my own financial needs, I, I probably am also dependent on others to provide me the things with which I can provide the services which I am providing. And I need to pay them because I can't expect them to give those services to me for free because one of my clients is in financial difficulty. That would be one scenario to look at. And I think we should also look at, at, at what happened during the pandemic or is still happening. I mean, there are businesses which are severely lost, like you saying, the restaurant business, the entertainment business, et cetera, et cetera. But I think right. there are also a lot of businesses that have fared very well because there are a lot of life carries on. You know, and my reaction to the should limited risk distributors, should they share in the losses during the pandemic, 
uh, would also be qualified well well it depends on the on the on the facts and circumstances and the industry i mean right. if, if the industry has been booming there's no reason to go to go to loss making if the parent has gone to maybe 70% of the profits that it had before does that become an excuse for trying to push down some of those costs to the subsidiaries or or do you start at 30 or 20 it really is very factual issue but you cannot carte blanche say okay now everyone can start sharing in the losses so that 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 would seem very difficult to justify sure well to your point right some of these industries Mm -hmm. that have seen a a boon during the pandemic and we can call out zoom right everybody has a zoom account now my children have zoom accounts (laughs) you know presumably because of the pandemic and because they had such a boon, they wouldn't have had to deal with losses because they were not in a loss making situation, presumably, depending on yeah. the business model, right? But I did go yeah, back to the first right. slide just so that we can talk yeah. a little bit more about some of these other points, Johan, right? I mean, I think that if we look at this idea, the second bullet of low risk functions or simple functions, that those to the extent that you are stripping out some of the risks from a related party distributor is the idea that that type of risk is purely a short-term risk. And that's one of the reasons why post-disaster or post-risk occurrence that you would think that they should continue to have the same framework. Well, I think there are two things. The one is that a lot of countries look at at, at maybe a three-year period on, on how you've done, whether you're within the arm's length range or not, right? And 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 one would argue that that looking at such a period gives you some leeway for dropping out at the bottom during that period, as long as you make it up later, right? But that making up later already implies that maybe you'll then have to go over the top once the pandemic is over. And and, and I think not a lot of taxpayers are keen on doing that. Otherwise, you're not yeah. going to get you're not going to get your average up, right? Is an issue. But I, I think you raise an interesting point. When you made the agreement, you know, uh, is is this some kind of force majeure? Is this something unforeseen? If you don't have a force majeure clause in your agreement, can it be deemed to be implied? I guess at the end of the day, the answer will simply have to be: What what do your peers in your industry do? and your competitors and coming back to this earlier point of of it really will depend on uh, i mean it's not a carte blanche for everyone and for those where let's just say you you you're running movie theaters across the globe can you justify the losses there i mean obviously if the, if the, if the parent can't pay the parent can't pay but you can always you can have an iou you can have a loan to the parent instead during that time rather than just write it off as as unpayable you do have alternatives such as that if an entity is going to assume losses is going to be because they assume risk how do you deal with that risk post the pandemic is this a pandemic risk that we forgot to put into the contract but 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 which will kick in the next one you know and and what if the next one is not a pandemic but uh, but is another financial crisis does it then cover that for me, the underlying message at the end of the day is this is not a free card to start distributing losses and you have to be really, really critical and careful with what you do. I think that would be the more nuanced position to take. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. I mean, and the third bullet ultimately was that idea, yeah. a to, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to complicate it or, or trick you into this idea, but it's risk equals reward now, right? So the idea is 
if an entity, if you're going to share losses, presumably, then they should also mm -hmm. be, there should be some upside, right? Yeah, like, there should definitely be some upside. I think you can draw a parallel to, for instance, you see very often in groups that they start with a startup and the startup make losses. And then they say, oh, but that's because the startup is fully fledged, right? And then, then five years down the line, the startup makes profits and the startup is then converted into a limited risk, a service provider, whatever it does, manufacturing or sales, whatever. And there's no way that the startup is ever going to be able to eat up those losses that it made because its profit going forward is so low that it's simply not going to work. I mean, a third party would, would not accept a deal like that on the eve of starting to become profitable and, 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 and growing and having the perspective of becoming a lot more profitable, right? And here it would be the same. I mean, if you only have to accept the downside, who would do that? Right. Yeah. And then, well, yeah. it's interesting, actually, and I'll bring it back to sort of a, a level that maybe everyone can understand. Do you watch Shark Tank? Are you familiar with that show at all? No. I don't okay. know. <laughs> so it's the one way where they go to entrepreneurs, right, and ask for money. Correct. They go to yeah, entrepreneurs. It's, okay. it's got a different name. Yeah. It's got a different name. But uh, yes, I'm with you. Uh, okay. Yeah. So they, yeah. they go and ask for money. And the reason I, I mentioned this is interesting. From a bargaining position, right, that relationship, yeah. those investors, they always make sure they recuperate their investment funds and they get the upside. So they limit that downside as much as possible. But from a fairness perspective, you have to wonder, is that the economic reality of what that entrepreneur would actually be able to see outside of a, a quote, television show, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good point because you do also see entrepreneurs walking away from an offer of a shark, right? And saying, yes, sorry, this is absolutely. too expensive. It doesn't do that, make sense right? for us to do that. And I think that this is all relevant because when we're talking about related party dealings, the basic premise of transfer pricing is that those related parties should be operating in a similar situation as if they're unrelated parties, two completely sort of independent companies, right? Which kind of brings me to my next question of, you know, this construct of a limited risk entity or limited risk distributor or some sort, don't you find that it's purely a related party construct? Like, do you really observe limited risk entities under third party situations? The short answer to that is yes, but I just want to touch base on another point that you raised. And that is, you know, there's something else that's a problem in, in, in limited risk or in related party transactions. And that is, if I'm an independent entrepreneur and I'm in a pandemic and I sell a product which doesn't sell anymore because of the pandemic, what I'm going to do is I'm going to find another product that does sell. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I might go from candy to toilet paper. Let's let's just say. Right. Right. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Toilet paper um, was very lucrative. Then, right. <laughs> so. Exactly. Right. But if you are in a related party situation, you're not allowed to do that. Right. Mm. Because if you're if you're selling Nestle, you got to keep on selling Nestle. You can't go and sell Unilever all of a sudden. And that is artificial. And I mean, another reason why I would argue you should not become loss-making is if you have to continue selling Nestle, even though Nestle doesn't sell, then Nestle needs to compensate you for continuing to sell Nestle and not selling Unilever, right? I mean, that, that, is, that right. would be another argument for saying, 
no, LRD should not be making losses because you cage them in and you cut them off from other avenues which an independent party would have pursued in order to survive financially. That then you exclusivity clause came in. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you get into a deemed service discussion, right? So I wanted to touch base on that, and then I'll get back to to your other point. But now you just got you need to remind me what your question was. Oh, no, well, I was. It was about observing limited risk entities under third party situations. But I think you've sort of answered that. In we do observe exclusivity clauses in third party situations. You do, but but they can always get out. Normally right. within a year or a year and a half or something like that, right? Then they can get out. But you also asked me, you know, do you see real independent limited risk service providers? And, and, and right. I think the answer is yes, absolutely. And if you think about, for instance, the Starbucks case with the coffee roasters, right? Where the commission argued that the coffee roaster would have earned a lot more roasting coffee for Starbucks than what the Dutch entity did. And therefore it was state aid. And when I saw that, you know, I, I I thought to myself, you've never dealt with the procurement department of a multinational because they squeeze the very last drop out of you, right? And, and they know, and I think that's not being in multinationals. I mean, if you look at our service providers, we know exactly what they earn. We have an idea of how much profit they're making, and, and we discuss with them how much they should be making. And in actual fact, they very often are not making much more than the 5% of his cost plus or the 2 or 3% if it's if some kind of GNMM like resale price. The only mm-hmm. time when you don't have real control over that is if you're in, 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 in a country where, for instance, if you're distributing something, the, the laws of that country, A, say that you're not allowed to own your own distributors, and B, says that there are maximum prices at which you're allowed to sell stuff to those distributors. Or even, and you see this actually in a number of countries in the medtech sector, that the government determines what the profit margin of the local distributor should be. But if you don't have that protection, I think, yes, there are a lot of independent service providers operating on cost plus five or resale price minus two or three percent or something like that, simply because they have to open the books completely. So completely independent third party limited risk entities operating similarly. Yeah. You know, if you have customers which are responsible for 40, 50, maybe 70 percent of your turnover, you do economically become a related party. But, but but you're not called that. And we can even call them cups in most countries. I mean, uh, I think it's interesting there if you look, for instance, at the Indian legislation of what a definition of a related party is. I mean, they would they would yes. qualify that as related parties, you know. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think quite yes. rightly so. Yeah. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And, you know, you mentioned Australia's perspective on sharing losses. Let's reiterate that again, right? What What is Australia's perspective? Are they saying you should or you should not? They haven't said you shouldn't, but, but they've issued a warning notice. And they've said, you know, the different parties have, have, have different ideas about what the pandemic can be useful for saving taxes, such as, for instance, prepayment of loans and stuff like that to take advantage of either lower rates subsequently or anything like that. And they say, well, we want to see if you would have done that with unrelated parties or whether unrelated parties do that. But they also do talk about the sharing of results between related parties which haven't shared profits before. And they say, you know, we want to see whether that happens in your industry, where we want to see if the local entity is loss-making, whether those losses are really related to the pandemic or whether it's not related to it. We want to see how you deal with it elsewhere, whether you've dealt with it the same way here. And I mean, to me, it, it sounded like it is a fair warning of we are watching you and, and we will come after you if all of a sudden, you know, you've had cost plus five for 20 years. And now all of a sudden you've got a loss that you can almost never never recuperate. Yeah. Right. But some of these losses, I guess, could ultimately, because of the pandemic, perhaps losses are even exacerbated or or potentially shareable costs. Let's just talk about a cost position. Yeah. Yeah. What about like PPE costs or, you know, sort of office remodeling costs or these one-time costs that were as a result of the pandemic, that companies had to make certain accommodations, COVID testing for employees and things of that nature. I mean, perhaps you're not sharing losses explicitly, but there are certain costs that perhaps we could argue they should be shared. I think they should be shared, but not in the way you you mean, in the sense that, you know, I mean, if, if you have, let's say you've got a distributor and the deal is that it's EBITDA over turnover and your EBIT's got to be 3%. Then, yeah, I mean, if your distributor now all of a sudden has to do a lot of office refurnishing spaces and it's got to do all kinds of things just in order to keep on selling and those costs are beyond what it would do normally, I would say those costs should be passed on to the principal because Mm -hmm. that is what the principal should be carrying, you know. Again, at the end of the day, what I'm arguing is the scope for for, for loss-making entities under COVID are far less than taxpayers maybe would like. You know, you, right. you, you've got to show that there's real cause for this and, and, and that your peers are suffering the same. Because yeah. if they're not, then you're going to have to explain why, why you didn't manage to innovate yourself out of it as well, right? Yeah. And I think that's a good segue into understanding some, what yeah. are these alternatives, right? What are alternatives that are available to these companies that are potentially had contemplated? Do we allow our LRDs and make this one-off situation to share in some of these losses because this is an extenuating market situation, what can multinationals do or consider, right? I think, and then I come back to what I said earlier, one one should also look and see what governments have done, right? Mm -hmm. So for instance, during a pandemic, let's say that you are an LRD and you're supposed to pay a royalty for using a trade name. Right. You know, would it be fair to to consider waiving that royalty 
during the pandemic in order to support your LRD or not, right? But as a tax authority, I would definitely raise that question. And I, and I have seen multinationals doing that. I mean, you do have multinationals which say that when a subsidiary is loss-making, we do not charge the royalty, right? Mm-hmm. Very often driven by fear of that the royalty is challengeable for starters. And I think you get into the whole discussion of group synergies and using names and should a company be paying for it because they belong to the group and all those kind of things. I think intercompany loans who are for outstanding payments, I mean, do you extend the payment periods for delivery of goods so that your customers can do the same? That would be one. I mean, if everyone else is still selling to the government or is still selling to third parties, but at double the payment terms, then maybe the principal supplier should do the same. That would be right. one additional service charges. We, do, we, we talked briefly about this idea, you know, that if you were a third party and you couldn't sell Nestle, you would you would try and sell Unilever instead. Alternative, you can't do that. right? Related mm-hmm. Yeah, does that justify a payment during a pandemic to at least keep you, not not to make you more profitable than otherwise, but, uh, but at least keep you within the range and maybe at the bottom of the range? You know, Mm -hmm. having, of course, the difficulty of not knowing what the range is going to be because we'll only know in a year or two. But I would definitely think of things like that. You know, the changes in supply chain arrangements, I don't know what different groups do, but would there be things that you can do to to maybe cut costs or at least cut costs for the LRDs in that regard? You could could think of, I think most LRDs, especially when you look at the servitors, are already on on DAP where the principal pays everything when when it comes to the INCO terms. But if you're not, maybe you want to change that during the INCO terms. You know, there are a lot of things that one would do. The question is, would you have to? Would you, would you do that for a related party? And quite frankly, I think there the answer is nuanced, right? Because because of the pandemic, a multinational may also be prepared to consider markets and transaction terms, which it never would have done during ordinary circumstances, because sure. it would rather sell something at cost than sell something at all. I, I think That's those are issues to consider. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually think what's interesting, you know, the alternative of allowing for an intercompany loan for outstanding payables, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. interesting because instead of writing that payment off and ultimately saying, oh, you don't owe it to us because you're a related party, which yeah. is a less justifiable position but extending some financing terms that make sense. That's similar to what you were saying of maybe changing the entire payment term structure from 30 days to 120 days, as an example, right? Exactly. And we do see that under third-party situations. You see that two things. The first one is, I mean, you're doing basically what governments have been doing for business in the right. sense that a lot of governments have deferred payment of taxes. So so mm-hmm. it can, can you call that the third party situation? I'm not sure. But the second issue is, you know, do you see companies extending the payment terms for third parties? I, I think the answer is absolutely yes. But it comes back to the thing of bargaining power as well, right? I mean, if you look at dealing with countries like Italy or you're dealing with a with, with country like South Africa or something, I mean, getting a payment out of the government can be notoriously difficult. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it doesn't stop companies from doing business in those countries because they they still rather want the sale. And maybe to some point, I've seen terms of two years of waiting for payments being in, built into the contract than not have the sale at all. You know, if you're in the metal industry and, 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 for instance, you're working with government hospitals as one of your major clients, I mean, 
in many cases you, you have you know you're supposed to have stock on demand you're you're supposed to have a generous payment term in any case and on top of that i mean you sometimes have to deal with the government saying sorry we cannot pay now what are you going to do about it i mean you, i i've not seen many multinationals then stopping selling to that government sure sure but you know yeah. it might be related to the benefits of being able to articulate that hey my business we sell to the government therefore it builds up some sort of marketing value in some ways right exactly so but it might be your LRD selling to that government yes yes right well, yeah and it might be your local LRD selling to the government and you want that LRD to sell to sell to the government but then you're right. really going to have to match the payment to me yeah. Yeah. That's right. And do you see the pandemic as being different than the recession, the financial crisis in 2008? I think yes in the sense that that, that it has a wider reach, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the the financial crisis in many aspects was more a western world problem than a global problem. I think there's more uncertainty with the pandemic than there was with the financial crisis in the sense that we don't know if there is going to become, what do you call it, uh, vaccine-resistant strains out. We don't know how often we would have to, to, to do the vaccination. I mean, it seems like right. we get two second and third waves and you get closed down continuously. I mean, is there going to be a fourth or a fifth wave? Is this something that's, that's going to be happening every winter for the next two or three years? About, I, I right. think there's more uncertainty than there was with the financial crisis. Interesting. Okay. But there's also the difference, I think, that much more than the financial crisis, we see the different industries faring either extremely well or terribly bad than they did in COVID as opposed to financial crisis. And, and, and what, what I still yeah. do not understand, but, but it is definitely a difference, is, is if you look at the stock market. Mm -hmm. We're talking here about the world sharing losses with their LRDs and share prices have never been higher, right? I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <it's, it's, laughs> Well, some of that is perhaps what people might consider artificial with the concept of meme stocks, right? So <laughs> interesting, interesting environment yeah. that we're all working in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just yeah. to wrap it up, right? I mean, this has been an interesting yeah. conversation. I think the concept of a limited risk distributor and your mm -hmm. position here is ultimately that you look at the risk profile and ultimately because of COVID, that's not a justification to just share losses COVID and just as a blanket remedy in the situation. Taxpayers clearly should look at the alternatives available and of course, look at different third party market conditions as a point to yeah. figure out exactly what types of alternatives are exactly available to you. And right now in terms of the global pandemic crisis i want to say that you know your position here is that because of the uncertainty of the future there's still a big question mark right in terms of what's going to happen to these lrd constructs what's going to happen to intercompany relationships but at the same time of course everything kind of goes back to the terms and conditions and the bargaining power and the negotiation of the intercompany relationship right johan 
It does, and, and I think I mean that's one point that we haven't touched on a lot. But uh, but I think bargaining power is a very important element in this, right? And I, and I think the bargaining power is is independent of pandemics. I mean, we talked a little about the artificiality of related party transactions. I think one of them yes. is that cost is always rewarded at five percent. Let's say, you know, right. I think in the real world. Your bargaining power will very often make it seven percent if it's a good service provider negotiator, and sometimes it'll make it three percent or two percent if the power is on the side of the buyer. And you really don't need a pandemic for for having those swings in profitability. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that that also works through to the pandemic. I mean, you the bargaining power at the end of the day will also determine to what extent you are forced to swallow some of the losses of your customers and whatnot. And, and, and I, I mean, I've seen some real life examples there where on, on the opposite side, right? If, if I, I, I worked in the drilling industry for a number of years and, and, and the price of drilling rigs, for instance, is not dependent on the price of steel, which is mm-hmm. very strange because these are huge steel structures, but, they, but it's dependent right. on the price of oil. Because the higher the price of oil, the higher the oil majors are prepared to pay for doing the searches used where they use the drilling rigs. And you see that the builders of the drilling rigs want to have a lift in that as well. You know, and they would simply, uh, the rig takes about four years to build. And, and, and if there's a huge boom in oil prices, after two years, they will simply say, you know what, sorry, we can't finish your rig for you. Uh, we know we've got a contract and the contract says that the amount is this, but we actually want 150% of that. And if you don't pay it, what are you going to do? You're not going to get your rig. And I mean, those kind of things do happen. And, and so bargaining, I mean, I mean, bargaining power is the missing chapter in the OECD guidelines. Right. It really is. Well, and then yeah. it does dictate arm's length terms. So that's, that's an interesting aspect to apply. Johan, thank you so much for your perspective. Of course, as you had indicated, the minority perspective, it depends on whose lens you're looking at it from, right? Whether or not limited risk distributors should be sharing in losses. You know, everything's based on a facts and circum- on your particular facts yes. and circumstances. But hopefully everybody listening today, it gives them food for thought, right? So appreciate that. We have a couple yes. of polling questions here that we wanna address very quickly for our audience members. Question number one, has your company restructured its supply chain due to COVID-19? And this will be pretty interesting, right, to see how many companies have had to make modifications to their facts and circumstances, because I think that's a very important piece of whether or not they could make modifications to their transfer pricing policy or even justify their loss shifting perspective. Right. So (laughs) let's see what we have here. Almost half of the attendees. Just another second. Okay, I think we've got a, a quorum here. So, oh, look at that. So not a lot of companies had to restructure its supply chain because of the pandemic. And I think that this maybe is supportive of of your position, Johan. Has your company considered allocating additional losses to a limited risk entity due to COVID-19? And this will be interesting to see, right? (laughs) <laughs> so it is more. I mean, considering and doing are two different things, right? But yeah. it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. yeah. How many people have even considered changing those contractual terms <laughs> yeah. and saying, hey, actually, we're not going to give you cost plus five this time. We're going to change that up. <laughs> All right. I think we're, at, let's see, I think we're at a quorum here. Okay. So, 27% said that they considered it. So the majority have not. And that's, 
That's probably makes sense. Let's say a limited risk distributor shares in losses due to COVID-19. What is the likelihood of that strategy triggering an audit? Johan, I'd, I'd actually be interested to hear your perspective on, on this question. The attendees can answer <laughs> based on their, in your opinion. A given, a given right? A given. Yeah. 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 That it, yeah. Ultimately, if they share losses, then it's going to trigger something, right? It's going to trigger an audit for sure. All right. Let's see. And, and I mean, you are going to have to deal with a future question of, of can we now share any extra profit as well? And if not, why not? Right? Of course. Of course. I, you know, yeah. I always find that to be a very important piece of this. If you're going to, if you're going to share the losses, you, you're going to have to figure out how you defend not sharing profits in other years, right? So let's right. see. So everyone agrees with yeah. you. It is very likely or it's given the majority of the audience. Yeah definitely agrees in, in that particular case. So ultimately, I think we have time for a quick Q&A. And so, Johan, just for you, a quick question for you. Yeah. How can COVID-19 losses affect a company's income position moving forward? That's the question. How can COVID-19 losses affect a company's income <clears throat> position moving forward? I, I think it depends on the industry, but uh, but I mean, if you think, for instance, for about the conference industry, right? Mm -hmm. I think conferences are 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 not quite going to be the same going forward in the future. If you ask people two years ago whether they would want to attend a virtual conference, I think a lot would have said no. No. Now yeah. people are more used to it. You know, I uh, mm -hmm. I think what people miss at at, at virtual conferences is still that the, the the networking and the personal interacting. So the the live conferences will still be populated, but maybe it will become far more normal to to have speakers online only and, and instead of flying them in and paying their hotels and all that kind of stuff. I I, I think other industries, uh, it'll be interesting to see if we will go back to traveling as much as we used to i think to some extent that is a, that is a personal choice but but we have seen that that, that you can also live without it and and, and and actually do it quite well I've, I've seen businesses where people that travel a lot say i simply will not do that anymore because right. you know i have become so much more productive instead of taking three days to do something i can do it in one day or one afternoon i think in that way it will change I, that will not change the profitability of the lrds Right, because yeah. simply, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they stay on the on on percentages. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's it's funny because uh, I I have spoken with people who, even on a personal basis, I went to yeah. the office and they say to me, "I like when you're not in the office. You're much more accessible." So. <laughs> <laughs> Via, via the, the video conference and via the phone, right? So <laughs> it's funny how that happens. I think we have time for yeah. one more question. If you're planning mm -hmm. that certain limited risk distributors should never absorb losses, how do you legally protect that entity? I, I'm right. not quite sure I, I, I understand that question, but I, I mean, I would, you know, you, you simply enforce it. If it's cost plus five, then you make sure I mean, I, I think one thing that we haven't talked about, but uh, and, and that, that one should talk about, is it, it also depends on your method. 
Right. I, I mean, the, the world is, is using EST, is using TNMM, I think, and we're all using EBIT. So the chance of things going wrong is not that great. But but if you have a justifiable position for using a cost plus or using a resale price and you're sitting at a gross profit margin, you probably are more likely to have losses during a pandemic and and, 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 it, and you will still have your LRD gross profit margin, right? But you will report a, a, a tax loss and, and maybe you will still be audited for that as well, even though technically that's not the transfer pricing's fault. And in that case, you might run into trouble with defending your position for never making losses legally. Mm-hmm. But then it will mm-hmm. depend on what level of DNL you're talking about. Right, whether you're talking mm-hmm. upward with gross profit or down at operational profit or not. But, 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 I, but I don't see a big problem for defending it legally. And I might just add, Doesn't you know, it? don't forget to have the terms and conditions of your intercompany contracts, right? Which is that legal framework to create the yeah. appropriate remuneration yeah. perspective position, right? So, all right, yeah. I think that's it. And we're, we're up on time. Once again, thank you all for participating in today's webinar and riveting discussion on limited risk distributors with Johan Miller. We're always happy to have you host you on our show. We really appreciate your perspective, really appreciate your time. Hopefully everybody here has learned a little bit about what they should be considering with respect to the limited risk distribution framework for transfer pricing purposes. And you guys can take some practical advice and and think about how does it work within the context of your multinational organization. So once again, my name is Mimi Song. I'm really happy to have been able to host this event today. Thank you for your participation. If you have any questions, you can always email us at events at xbs.ai, E-V-E-N-T-S at xbs.ai. Johan, thank you so much. Thank you all for participating. It's always a pleasure to participate, and it's, it's great working with hosts like you. The, the conversation just flows very easily. Absolutely. It's fun Excellent. to do. Thank you so much. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and we want to thank mimi and johan for joining us on this very informative discussion if you liked this podcast you're going to love the other shows in cross-border solutions tax podcast suite that's the fiona show r&d tax credit and the fiona show tax provision subscribe to this podcast 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show transfer pricing, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in transfer pricing. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week.